You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, you know, when you think about it, freedom is, is you know, especially these days, you know, freedom is, is like the buzzword of the day, right? You know, I mean, you know, obviously freedom is, is an important part of our nation's fabric. But, you know, nowadays, you know, many people feel like, like their freedoms are being threatened. You know, whether it's the artist and their, and their freedom of expression or even the Christian and our freedom of, of religion or, or even the YouTuber and their freedom of speech. But many of us feel that our freedoms are being threatened. Back in 1941, President Roosevelt had spoken about four great freedoms that he felt should be universal. Those were freedom of speech, freedom to worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Four great freedoms that he felt should be universal. Well, the freedom here in Galatians chapter 5 this morning is none of the above. It's none of those things. The freedom in Galatians chapter 5 is not freedom from a mask mandate. It's not freedom of speech or even freedom of religion. But rather, as commentator John MacArthur puts it, it's the freedom to live a life of righteousness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. It's the freedom to live a life of righteousness in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, now that you have the Holy Spirit in you, now you have the power to actually live a life where you're set free from your slavery from sin. You've been set free, as, as the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.17, wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so it's on that note, as we go back now to the first four verses, Paul reminds us that we've been set free. Verse, verse 1, he says again, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace." Now, as I read this passage this morning, we, we need to, to keep in mind that we've now entered a new section in the book of Galatians, a new section of the outline. Remember, I covered the outline of the book of Galatians, even last week I reminded you of it. The outline of the book of Galatians, if you remember, is that the first two chapters were personal. You know, Paul shares his personal testimony. He personally defends himself. So the first two chapters were personal, then chapters three and four were doctrinal. Doctrinal. He, he teaches the doctrine of salvation in chapters 3 and 4. But now, chapter 5 and chapter 6 are practical. Practical. So you've got personal, doctrinal, and practical. And, 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 and by the way, that's typically how Paul, uh, when, when he writes his letters, that's typically how Paul always ends his letters. He always saves the, the application, he saves the practical for the end, for the last. He, and so always in the end, he, he's always going to help you apply what he's been talking about. And you can always tell when Paul's getting to that last section, to the application section, because he always uses the word therefore somewhere in that section. And, and so you see the word therefore, and it's his way of letting you know that a shift is now taking place. And so in this case, it's a shift that's taking place from the, from the doctrinal to the practical. And he's now saying, hey, this is how you apply the doctrine of salvation to your life personally. Now, 
Keep in mind that the message of the law, which was the message that the so-called Judaizers were preaching, the message of the law would say, you know what? If you want to be free, well, then you have to earn it. You have to work for it. You have to earn your freedom. But you see, the message of grace, on the other hand, is that if you want freedom, you have to receive it. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't do anything to deserve it. You just receive it. You see, someone else, namely Jesus himself, came to set you free. So you don't need to earn your freedom. He set you free. You just need to receive the freedom that he's giving. And so the the law gives you the command, but, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. It commands you, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. But, but grace is able to do what the law is powerless to do, in that grace gives you the power. Grace gives you the ability to do it. Or as commentator C.H. Uh, McIntosh put it, The law demands strength from one who has none, whereas the gospel gives strength to the one who has none. The law demands strength from the one who has no strength, but the gospel gives strength to the one who has no strength. And so the gospel gives you the power to do it. And so after he reminds us in verse 1 that we've been set free, he goes on to say, Therefore stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And of course, a yoke was, was a, a thick wooden steering device that the farmer would use to, to get his oxen to submit to him, to get him to go the direction he wants him to go. But now metaphorically, in this context, the, the yoke here was the yoke of legalism. You know, the, 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 you know a legalistic religious set of rules, a, a, a religious list of, of, of regulations that you had to do in order to try to please God. But the problem is that you're never going to be good enough. You know, you, you try to do this list and do that ritual and do this thing and you try harder and yet you always fail. You always fall short. And so, and so you, you, you end up enslaving yourself to legalism because you, you try hard and you fail. So you try harder and you fail again. You try even harder and you fail again. And you're always in this cycle where you're trying and you're failing and you're trying and you're failing. You, you, you've, en, you, you've enslaved yourself to legalism. In fact, really, that's even how the Apostle Peter, if you remember, that's how Peter described the law of Moses. Remember that council meeting in the book of Acts where all the apostles gather together and they're debating about what to do with the doctrine of salvation? And in that council meeting in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter stands up and he says, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? And so legalism was a yoke of slavery. Now, with that in mind, then Paul continues in verse 3, and he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Now, he says you're obligated to keep the whole law. He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, remember, in, 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 in the first five books of the Bible, uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, there's not just Ten Commandments. There are actually 613 commandments. Now, if that's not enough to try to keep, then there's also the oral traditions uh, recorded in the Mishnah and the Talmud. And and in those, there's an additional 1,521 commandments. And and so when it says that that, that, you're, you're obligated to keep the whole law, the idea is that you have to keep it perfectly. You have to keep every single one of those laws, all of them, perfectly. You can't break one of those laws. You can't break a jot or a tittle. In fact, you you may remember on a different occasion, 
that, that Jesus even said that, that if you've so much as lusted after another woman in your heart, you're basically guilty of committing adultery with her in your heart. He also said if, if you've ever been angry with someone in your heart, you're, you're guilty of committing murder in your heart. And so the idea is that when it comes to keeping the law, you have to keep the whole law. In fact, for that matter, even your thought life, even the attitude of your heart needs to be perfect. You have to be 100% perfect 100% of the time. If you're going to keep the law, you have to keep the whole law perfectly. And I look that up in the Hebrew and it's pronounced this way. It's, it's pronounced, yeah, good luck with that. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he put it this way in James chapter 2, verse 10. He said, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And so that's Paul's point here when he says, he says if, if you accept circumcision, you are now obligated to keep the whole law. And, and good luck with that. You're not going to be able to do it. No one can do it. No one is able to be 100% perfect 100% of the time. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say that you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Now, in effect, what Paul's saying is that, you know what, the Judaizers, you know, they were this group of people that were like a walking contradiction. You know, they were saying two different messages. They were talking out of both sides of their mouth. Now, we call them politicians nowadays, but it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, but you know, he, he, they're just a walking contradiction because on the one hand, the Judaizers are saying, you know what, you know, there, there's nothing I can do to, to earn my salvation. There's no amount of good works that can save me. And, and so it's only by grace. But then on the other hand, that same group, the Judaizers, were also saying, you know what, I can save myself by, by keeping the law, by keeping these rituals. If, if I perform enough good works, then I'll be good enough for God to accept me. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, it's either one or the other, but you cannot have both at the same time. Either you cannot save yourself or you can save yourself, but you cannot have both at the same time. In fact, what Paul's saying is, is that, frankly, keeping the law doesn't bring you closer to God. It actually, uh, it actually separates you from God. That's what he says. He says, you are severed from Christ, verse 4. It doesn't bring you closer to God. It actually separates you from God when you're trying to keep the law. Why? Because by trying to keep the law always reminds you of how much you failed, how much you fall short, because you try to keep the law and you fail. You, you try to keep this ritual and you break it. You try to keep this commandment and you break it. You try hard and you fail. You try harder and you fail. It doesn't bring you closer to God. It actually separates you from God. It reminds you how much you fall short. And so that's why, as we pick it up in verses 5 and 6, Paul's pointing out that, it, that it's not through the law, it's not through all these rituals, rather it's through the Spirit. It's through the Spirit. He says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, keep, again, keep in mind, Paul's dealing with this group, the Judaizers. And, and, and the Judaizers were the ones who were saying, you know what, it's by, it's by, it's by works. It's by, it's by righteousness. It's by, it's by flesh. That's how you do it. But you see, the gospel says, no, it's by the Spirit. It's not by, by, by might. It's not by power. It's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. It, it, it's through the Spirit. 
And I've shared this probably before, but years and years ago during the Rose Bowl parade, uh, the, the whole parade came to a screeching halt because there was this big, huge, beautiful float that, that sputtered to a stop. And so they tried pushing it, they, they tried pulling it, but it was a no-go. It, it, just, it was too heavy to move. And, and, and so the, the whole parade came to a standstill. Why? Because everybody had to wait for somebody with a gas can to come in and put some gas back in this float. Now, the ironic thing is that the, the, the float that ran out of gas was the float for the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> it's a true story. Well, now, in the same way, the, the, the Judaizers were, were a lot like that, that Rose Bowl float. I mean, they're, they're, they're empty. They're, they're running on empty. They're, they're out of gas, and yet they're, they're trying to do it in their own strength. They're trying to accomplish righteousness in their own power, in their own ability. And so in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the, the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He's, he's illustrating that without the power of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the life of faith, the, the Christian life, is impossible to live. If you're trying to do it without the Holy Spirit, you're, you're, you're the Rose Bowl parade float on empty. You're doing it in your own power. You're doing it in your own strength. And so it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you. Think of it this way. Jesus set you free, but it's the Holy Spirit who now gives you the, the power to live your new life of freedom. Jesus is the one who set you free. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the power you need to live that new life of freedom. Now with that, after he says that it's through the Spirit, he says, by faith, verse 5, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Uh, it counts for nothing, but only faith working through love. Now, there's two things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice in, in, in verse 5, notice he does not say that we eagerly work for the hope of righteousness. No, he says we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In, in other words, righteousness is not something we work for. Rather, righteousness is something we wait for. We don't strive to make it happen. Rather, we wait for it. For it. We, we wait to receive it. It, it. It's been given to us. We don't work for it, we wait for it. And then number two, the second thing I want you to notice is at the end of, uh, of verse six, after he says there's neither circumcision or uncircumcision, he says, but only faith working through love. Now the NIV renders it this way. It says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see, true faith it expresses itself through love. And so what really counts is, is not works of righteousness. It's not re religious deeds and, and rituals. No, what really counts is faith expressing itself through love. Think of it this way. A works-based righteousness is, is a system that says, you know what? You've got to do all these things to make God love you. You've got to do this and do that and do this to make God love you. Whereas faith simply says, no. You're doing all these things because God already loves you. And so it's faith that expresses itself through love. Because he loves you and you've received his love, now you're doing these things. You're not doing these things to make him love you. You're doing these things because he loves you. And now Paul illustrates that. Uh, in, in verses 7 through 12 by using two analogies, the, the analogy of, of a sports analogy and, and also a baking analogy. And, and, and these two analogies end up exposing the Judaizers. <coughs> Pardon me. So verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 7, Paul says, 
you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, by the way, that's what the Judaizers were saying. You know, Paul has left town. He, he's no longer in the region of Galatia. And now that he's, he's left town, the Judaizers are saying, hey, you know what? Deep down, the Apostle Paul agrees with us. Deep down, the Apostle Paul agrees that you're supposed to be circumcised. And so Paul's saying, well, listen, if that's true, then why are they attacking me? I mean, if my message and their message are the same message, then why are they persecuting me? And then he says in verse 12, he says, I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Now, listen, if, if, if you don't know what the word emasculate means, I, I, you know, on a Sunday morning in this context, I just really can't, like, describe, like, you know, what he, you know, let me just say he kind of cut them off right there. He just, you know, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but what's interesting is, is when you study the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, uh, you, you see over and over again that, that it, you know, he, he uses the, the, a particular analogy. He uses a sports analogy over and over again. So I take it to mean that Paul was a sports fan. That's why I think it's biblical to listen to sports radio and be a Broncos fan. It's just, you know, it's a side note. But it's biblical. Uh, <laughs> Do not write me letters on that. And if you do, my, my personal email is pastoredtaylor at calvaryaurora.org. Um, anyway, but what's interesting is, you know, he's clearly a sports fan because over and over again, Paul is always using a metaphor, really, of, of running, running a race, you know, running a marathon. He uses this over and over again, and really, he uses uh, running a marathon as a metaphor for the Christian life, that trying to live the Christian life is like running a, a, a marathon. For example, uh, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, he says, Do you not know that, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run in, that, that you may obtain it. And now in keeping in the same theme, he now says in verse 7, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the, the truth? Now, again, the metaphor is that of a marathon. Really, he's using a, 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 an illustration from the Olympic Games. You see, during the Olympic Games, during the marathon race, uh, one of the common ways that a, that a runner would cheat during that race is that he would, he would throw something behind him, like, like, like a huge rock or, or, a, or a, a huge branch or a block of some kind. He would throw that in the path behind him so that the runners behind him would trip over that. It was called a stumbling block. And so the Judaizers were hindering the Galatians in their marathon of trying to pursue the Lord, in their race, trying to pursue the Lord, in their path, and trying to seek the Lord. The, the Judaizers were, were, were throwing a stumbling block of legalism, a stumbling block of the law to trip them up. And so, and so they, 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 they were throwing legalism in their path, and, and it was hindering them. It was tripping them up. So that's the first metaphor, a sports metaphor. But I also told you he would use a baking metaphor. We see that in verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now you need to know that the leaven in the scripture is often used as a symbol to represent sin. A symbol to represent sin. But, but what in the world is leaven? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, leaven is, is, is basically fermented dough. 
You know, so if you're, if you're baking bread, you, you, you put the dough together, and then, and then you tear off just a little piece of it, just a small piece, roll it up into a ball, and then put it up over on the windowsill. You put it on the windowsill and let it, and let it ferment. Then days and days later, then make, when you're making a new loaf, a fresh loaf, you then grab that, that leavened ball or that fermented ball of dough, and then you mix it, in, mix it into the fresh batch because it's like a, it's like a rising agent. And so you mix it through and, and it spreads through and, and, and now it, it grows and grows. It, it rises and rises. And so in the same way, it was used as a symbol of sin. Why? Well, because when you think about it, sin, like leaven, starts small, but it doesn't stay small. You know, it starts small. You know, at first you think, you know, it's no big deal. You know, I, I'm in control. I can quit anytime I want to. But before you know it, it spreads and spreads and it grows and grows. And pretty soon you're not in control. It's in control. It, it, it is puffed up, it is risen, it has taken over the whole batch. Now on that note, you may remember on a different occasion that Jesus in Luke chapter 12 verse 1 said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now the word hypocrisy, hypocrites in the Greek, it, it speaks of an actor in these Roman and Greek plays who would wear a mask. They'd have a, a mask that was on a stick, and, they, and, and to play one character they'd hold up the mask, and then to play a different character they'd take down the mask. Now, in this context, in this case, the idea is that the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day were, were, were using their deeds, their religious deeds and their religious rituals as a mask, as a way to, to cover up and hide how sinful they really were. You know, they, they were putting on this religious show to, to make people think that they were so super spiritual, when in fact, deep, deep down, they were full of sin. But as I mentioned, the problem with sin is that sin might start small, but it doesn't stay small. You know, you, you, you might be able to cover it up for, for a while, but eventually it grows and grows. And like leaven, pretty soon it's so puffed up that everyone will know. You can't hide it. And so it's with that in mind that Jesus says in, in verse 9, speaking of the Judaizers, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Meaning that you, these Judaizers are just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They, 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 you know, they, they have this mask on. They're pretending to be so spiritual, but they're covering up their sin. And if you buy what they're selling, if you, if you buy into all their stuff, then you're going to be just like them. A little leaven spoils the whole batch. It, 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 it leavens the whole lump. And then in verse 13 to verse 15, he reminds them and reminds us that you are free to love. He tells us we've been set free, but for what? You've been set free to love. Notice verse 13, he says, For you were called the freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so first in verse 13, Paul says that you're called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And you see, Paul's critics, the, 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 the so-called Judaizers, that's what they were doing. They were basically saying, hey, listen, Paul, if, if you keep preaching you know, grace, and if all you talk about is grace over and over again, grace and grace and grace, well, pretty soon people are going to take advantage of grace and use grace as, as, as a license to sin. They'll be like, you know what, I can sin, I can do anything I want, because after all, God's going to forgive me. I mean, every time I do it, God, God will keep forgiving me. They'll use it as a license for sin. I don't know about you, but I've, I've met people like that. 
fact, I remember years ago when, when I was an assistant pastor down at Crossroads Calvary Chapel in Wheat Ridge, uh, there was this guy that I'd counsel with who had, had drug addiction and, and alcohol addiction, and, and yet he would constantly try to justify his addictions. And often he would quote that verse that I shared earlier out of 2 Corinthians 3.17 that says, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so he'd quote that verse and he'd be like, he'd be like hey, bro, you know, man, you know, you know, wherever this, the Bible says wherever the spirit of the Lord is, man, there's freedom. So the spirit's in me, bro, so I'm free to get high. I'm free to get drunk. Free to get loaded, bro. Well, Paul's answer to that is simply, he's like, he's like you know what? A truly spiritual person, you know, someone who, who truly has been set free from their sin, someone who, who truly has the Holy Spirit in them, uh, they, yeah, they have freedom, but they're not going to use their freedom as an opportunity to sin, as an excuse to sin. No, he's saying, you know what? As, as a Christian, you, you, you've been set free from sin. You're not free to sin. You're not free to sin. You've been set free from sin. In fact, we know from the Bible that, that those who, who use their freedom as a license to sin eventually become slaves to sin. Anybody else read John chapter 8 where Jesus said, he who commits a sin is a slave of sin? That's the first thing. Now, the second thing we notice is in verse 14 when, 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 when Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you. I wasn't a math major, but I just counted seven words. I mean, he said the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and then he uses seven words. I, don't, I just find that funny. Um, but the, the word, of course, is love. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that is love. Now, I don't know about you, but, but this reminds me of, of, of this time where, where one of the religious leaders back in Jesus' day came to Jesus and asked him a trick question. And, and so in, in, in Luke chapter 10, we read about this religious leader who comes and, and says, you know, Jesus, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what, what does the law of God say? And so the, the religious leader replies and answers back in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, by the way, he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. But then he goes on and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now there he's quoting from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Everybody thinks that Jesus in the New Testament was the first to say those words. It's a quote from Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus hears this and says, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. Go and do those things and you shall live. But then the, the religious leader responds and says, yeah, but, but who's my neighbor? Now that was the trick question. And it was a trick question because because. Uh, the, the, the teachers and the rabbis of that day, they would say that your neighbor was your fellow Jew. That, you know, no matter who they were, no matter if you got along with them or not, no matter if you liked them or not, if, if there was a, a, a person in the Jewish community that was in trouble and needed help, you were to help them no matter what you thought about them. Why? Because they were your neighbor. But on the other hand, the, the Jewish people in that culture, they were not so neighborly with, with the non-Jewish person, the so-called Gentile. In fact, one of the famous rabbi sayings in that day was this. It said it was illegal to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because by helping her, you're helping to bring another unwanted Gentile into this world. Yeah, that's neighborly. And so with that in mind, Jesus then tells a story, uh, the so-called story of the Good Samaritan. 
this guy who's traveling to Jericho, and all of a sudden he gets ambushed by, by these highway robbers who, who beat him and, 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 and take everything he has and leave him for dead. But then uh, there, there's a, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan that come along. Kind of sounds like a joke, right? Did you hear the one about the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan? You know, and, and, and yet in the story that Jesus tells, the, the hero of the story was not the good Jew. It was not the good Levite. It was not the good, you know, uh, priest. No, the hero of the story was the good Samaritan. You have, to, you, have to, you have to hear that phrase, good Samaritan, through the ears of the, of the Jewish audience that, that first heard it when Jesus said it. You see, when a Jewish person heard the phrase, good Samaritan, to them, that was an oxymoron. Like we said last week, you know, like, like government intelligence. It just doesn't go together. And so, you know, they said, you know, uh, good Samaritan. Uh, now, what, who were the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were, were like these, basically these, these half-breeds. They, they were a group of people where, where the, the Jews had these mixed marriages with the Mesopotamians. And as a result, in time, they had a mixed religion. They mixed the religion of the Jews with the pagan religions of the people. And as a result, both groups, the Samaritans and the Jews, absolutely hated each other. And so to, to tell a Jewish person back in the days of Jesus a story of a good Samaritan, that'd be like telling a Jewish person today in modern times the story of the good Arab or the story of the good ISIS terrorist. In their mind, there's no such thing. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, you know, we've all heard sermons on the Good Samaritan, and oftentimes it ends with, with basically saying you know, that the moral of the story is for you to be a good Samaritan, for you to be a good neighbor, for you to pay it forward and be, uh, be a person that does good things. But listen, when Jesus first taught this story, he was not teaching a moral lesson. He wasn't teaching that we, we all need to be good Samaritans and, and do better things and, and join some kind of charity work. No, what was he doing? He was answering this religious leader's question. And what was the religious leader's question? He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now again, this was a religious leader who was asking this question. And, and so the religious leader, you know, probably was a guy who thought, you know what, man, if there's anybody who's going to go to heaven, it's going to be somebody like me. I mean, I've, I've, I've memorized scripture. I've, I've, I've kept all the laws and all the commandments and I've kept all these rituals and I've made all of these sacrifices. I mean, certainly if there's, if there's anybody who's going to go to heaven, it's somebody like me, a religious leader. He was probably expecting Jesus to say, oh, dude, look, you're like almost perfect. I mean, look at you, you're a religious leader. There's nothing else you need to do. You're, 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 like, a, you're like a first ballot entry into heaven. You're going to get there, no problem. But instead, Jesus tells him the story of the good Samaritan. You see, the truth is, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were sort of the beta version of the Judaizers of Paul's day. Because the Judaizers believed the same thing. They believed that you had to keep the law and keep these rituals in order to go to heaven. So Jesus refuted that idea by, by telling the one about the, the, the priest, the Levite, and the good Samaritan. Not the good Jew, the good Samaritan. It really was a tale of, of, of two extremes. Because, because on the one hand, you've got this religious leader who devoted his life to, to memorizing scripture. He devoted his life to keeping rituals. He devoted his life to, to all these sacrifices. But on the other hand, you, you've got this, this hated Samaritan. And so on the one hand, you, you've, got, you've got this guy that looks so righteous and so holy on the outside, but he was hard and calloused on the inside. But then on the other hand, you've got this guy who looks sinful on the outside, but, but his actions actually showed that he had the true love of God on the inside. 
And so this religious leader, he, he, he loved rituals more than he loved people. He loved religion more than he loved God. He may have memorized the law of God, but he lost the heart of God. And this reminds us that, 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 that you can be religious on the outside and still be hard-hearted on the inside. And so in the same way, the Apostle Paul is, is now reminding the, the, the Galatians that, that the real proof that, that, that you've been set free, the real proof that the Holy Spirit's in you is, is, is not keeping the law. It, it's not being circumcised. It's not memorizing Scripture. No, the real proof that the Holy Spirit's in you is love. One of my favorite authors is, is Philip Yancey. And years back, he, he wrote a book titled the, the Jesus I Never Knew. And in, this, and in this book, he tells a true story of a woman who was a prostitute and a drug addict. And, and she was in, in absolute dire straits. In fact, so much so that she was actually renting out her own two-year-old daughter to men interested in kinky sex. And she was doing this to support her heroin habit. Now, she's confessing all this to a counselor. And the counselor asked her and said, well, have you ever thought about going to the church for help? To which she scoffed and she said, church, why would I ever go there? I mean, I'm already feeling terrible about myself. They will just make me feel worse. They'll, they'll judge me and they'll condemn me. To which author Philip Yancey responded and said, evidently the down and out who once flocked to Jesus when he lived on the earth no longer feel welcome among his followers today. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, as well as the Judaizers of Paul's day, remind us that, that, that a heart without God, a heart that's steeped in rituals, a heart that's steeped in religion, has the possibility of being a hard heart, a, 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 a judgmental heart. But listen to this. When, 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 when God truly comes into your heart, he's going to change your heart. Even as it says in Ezekiel, he'll take your heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh. And so again, the, the true sign that you've really been set free, the true sign that the Holy Spirit has really filled you and the Holy Spirit is really in you is faith expressing itself through love. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.